Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. There's a knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, well, they're, they're doing that because that's good PR. I have massalophobia, which is I really don't like the ocean. You need the right substance, but there also has to be some sort of mind towards presentation. Okay, so my readings for this class. So I um, I bought the updated version of the Diagnosis and Statistic Manual, uh, it's the revised version. It just came out, which is like nice because I'm getting the most updated information. I was excited, but the class is built on the readings for the unupdated version. So like the the page breakups when it's like read like this section and this section, it should be about, you know, 100 pages for me. It's like, oh, cool. It's like 170 pages. Awesome. Um, man, So the readings, the readings have been tough this week. Oh, so it's actually really good. It's expanded. It's not just it's not just oh, that the yeah. page numbers are different. It's actually more information. Dang. Yes, yes. Like they've added some more like um, they'll add like more stipulations to certain diagnoses or they'll repair certain things. There's been a couple times where it's even said like in the DSM five, like this diagnosis was called this. But since then, we've learned this extra stuff. So like now here's all that new update information and a new like we're calling this disorder something different now. So. It's like I said, I'm glad to have the new information, but at the same time, it's just a lot of reading. Yeah, that's right. Like I said, good reading, just a lot of reading. And not everybody in your class is doing the same thing. Do they all have the updated one? I don't think so. I'm going to imagine that that a lot of them have the like the DSM five. Um. I don't know exactly how I wouldn't want to be the professor right now uh, where it's like, okay, cool. Like they literally just released the new version like a little while ago. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. I I just wouldn't want to be in this predicament. Yeah. Having to uh, transfer it all over. Um, So I actually, the stuff I brought, I can go first if that's cool with you, unless you were wanting to. Oh, sure. Because I don't know if it'll be that long, but a lot of a lot of it connects to what we talked about on the last episode. It actually. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I I had the the meeting that I have weekly with my my professor for my independent study thing. And we ended up talking just naturally about a lot of the uh, stuff that we talked about last week. A lot of the questions that we had. Because he listens to the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Big coming along nicely fan. Um, but I. Okay. So two. Two things. In reference to. Last week. We were talking about. How writing a research paper. Feels. Like a different tone. I mean I don't know exactly what we were asking about. But we were saying that. Something about using sources. And and researching oh 
it was like how by using someone else's research that they've well thought out, we can just cite them and we're supposed to act as if we are as experienced as that researcher. Right. It kind of feels like borrowing their authority and their influence in a way that isn't always 100% genuine, I think is what we were getting at. I don't know if we said it quite that succinctly, but like, obviously you can do a bunch of research and you can use sources in a way that is good, but there's also times where you're writing a paper and you're just using sources because you have to. And the whole time you're like, I don't know if I don't even know if what I'm saying is authoritative, but you, you have to say it that way. And so that's kind of what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, he and I were talking about my project that I'm working on for that class. And it, the project he was kind of wanting to know from me, what, what format the final result would take, because the purpose of like this class is research and independent study. That's what he's guiding me on is how to do research on a subject in a project like this. But that being said, the project, you know, could be practically anything. Like it doesn't have to be some 25 page paper. It could be, you know, they, they, the school wants it to be something that can benefit students, practically speaking. And so, Okay. So anyway, students or you like as a student? Well, this is my independent study. So they want this to benefit me. But I'm saying gotcha. broadly, when they do this with students, they're trying to move towards stuff that is practical. So what I'm going to do for this project, I'm going to try to come out of it with a book proposal and an outline of the book and with. Oh all of my starting research. So the book won't be written yet, but I'll have, I'll have all of my sources and my organization of how I think the book's going to go so that I can start, start writing it all of that to say. So this, this is where I go back to the original question. I was talking to him about writing for a popular audience. Cause that's what I want this book to be. And not as much, of a research paper sort of sort of format and what we kind of stumbled onto this is this is granted like it's just our conversation and it was just sort of what we landed on but i did think it was helpful is that an academic paper you are almost taking more of a defensive stance hmm. so when you're writing something, even though you're trying to, oh, okay, sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up as you're talking. Yeah, well, no, because like, I was kind of telling him I, w- I would be a little lost writing. I've never written like a popular level book, and so that's what we were talking about. And when you're writing something that's more rigorous, you're thinking about yourself, and like, I don't want my argument to be torn apart. And so I want to make it as strong as possible and really dense. And the sentence, you know, one sentence might take up half the page, but that's okay because 
because it has to be as strong as possible. Whereas a popular level writing, you're a little bit more vulnerable because you're not trying to say it in the way that is most defensible. You're trying to say it in the way that people will understand it. That's kind of what we were talking about. Because for a research paper, you're assuming you don't have to explain as much. But the new information that you're adding to the conversation of experts you're trying to defend. Yeah, that and also you're trying to make it as precise as possible. I think it's I think it's multiple things like I. I wrote a five-page paper for one of the other classes, and uh, we were workshopping it in a group, and my classmates' feedback was like, hey, this is really good, what you're saying, but there are a couple parts where it's just like really dense. And I'm making it that dense because I don't want anybody to be able to misinterpret what I'm saying. But for them, it's like, yeah, but you don't need to do that. See, that's kind of where I'm always at, too, is I want to be extra sure people are understanding what I'm saying, you know? Right. What What was their argument for why you don't have to make it as dense? Well, because the nature of the. The nature of the project just wasn't that it wasn't supposed to be yeah. a super formal thing. And so there were, yeah, they just didn't think it was necessary. Um, but I've, I feel like I've seen this, I, I've seen it happen, I think, in like the church world too, because that is kind of like both of our background. I've seen it where uh, people will, will see, you know, sermons or whatever that are frankly just like not good. They'll see mm -hmm. the worst version of, you know, preaching or whatever, where it's just taking one random scripture or like half of a phrase and building a whole message off of it. And the message doesn't even have anything to do with what the scripture was originally about. And so it's just a mess. And so I've, pe I've seen it where people do that, or excuse me, I've seen it where people see that kind of preaching and then, mm -hmm. They don't like it, but then in response to that, they become the most uh, just, I guess, again, dense communication. And it's like they can't even say a single thing about the Bible without giving you like 15 minutes worth of like disclaimers because they want you to know that they know what they're talking about. And uh. I think, again, I get the reaction. It's like you don't want to be the 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 cheap version, so you want to be the most rigorous version. But th this is what we were talking about last week, too, is like it kind of has to be both. You need the right substance, but there also has to be some sort of mind towards presentation. Hmm. So... Okay, I, I think we rabbit trailed for a little bit. Where did you and your professor then, or expound on that a little bit more? So you kind of talked about like the difference between popular writing, which if I'm hearing you correctly, popular writing is more 
aggressive versus versus defensive. And it's more about, would you say, providing new information versus defending. I don't even know if I can explain it well. That's not. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. That's not exactly how to say say it. It's not. I wouldn't say aggressive versus defensive. I think what we were talking about, and maybe maybe this is just his coaching to me, but I do think it is worth sharing. We were talking about it more in terms of selfish and selfless. So oh, okay. with the academic, it's selfish. I want what I'm writing to be as bulletproof as possible. And I'm thinking defensively because I don't want anybody to to find weaknesses in it. Whereas with, with a more popular uh, audience that you're going for, you kind of have to, you kind of have to put yourself out there a little bit more because you're going to know a lot more about the subject than what you actually put out there. And you're not going to have time or ability to get so deep into the weeds on every single subject. You kind of have to say what you're trying to say Mm. in a, this is where it's selfless because you're thinking about the reader and you need to put the information in the way that they're going to hear it. And maybe you don't get into all the technical terms and that's where you are a little bit more out there because you're not, you're not giving the full uh, you're not giving the full argument. Does that make sense? No, that makes a lot more sense. Like selfless, selfless in the sense of it's not, I'm trying to make myself look good. It's I'm in, in the interest of sharing communication. I've got to lower where I'm talking at. Right. Right. And at that level, you're kind of willing, you have to be willing to be misunderstood by some people just because not everything can be understood by everyone. So, yeah. And that makes sense. And tying it back to what you said, too, about, like, preaching, too. Because I think I hear that, Then I hear the selfless versus, well, I, I hate to call it selfish. Because I don't, I don't want to say that. Let me say this. I think that there's a lot of people who, like, will hate on, like, celebrity preachers. Like for the example I'm thinking of, I I love Judah Smith. I I like listening to him. I get a lot out of him. I have for a while, but he's much more in the realm of like self less communicating because all of his messages are like you could use the word like seeker friendly or super like basic, but like he also like kind of shamelessly that's his audience. Yeah, I haven't. But like, I also love listening to like Nan- like Nathan Finocchio and stuff like that, where it's like dense theology for 45 minutes. But like, you couldn't just show that to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't listened to Judah Smith in a long time. But uh, I think what you're saying is kind of what I'm talking about. I think I think if somebody really doesn't like Judah Smith then the reaction is, well, I have to go, I have to swing myself to the other end of the pendulum to, to prove, 
you know, either to myself or prove to others that I'm not like that. But I don't think that that's the right, you know, doing things like a motivation with, with that sort of motivation mm. of having to prove something isn't isn't really correct. Isn't the best motivation. So the other thing, and this is again from my research for that same class. Uh, it it okay. So it has to do with this. Um. Gosh, I'm even hesitating if I should get into this because it's so it is so deep and I'm having a hard time even like grasping it myself. But I will get into it just quickly. So I'm studying this guy, this scholar named Northrop Fry. He was a literary critic, a literary theorist, all about the English language. So very much up my alley. He also was a Christian and he's talking about he he did a lot of work talking about myth and essentially, you know, some of his views are about how like you can't separate Christianity from culture, for example, from English speaking culture, because the language of English borrows so much from Christianity and all of these just really interesting uh, hmm. thoughts. But again, last week we were talking about, you know, facts versus story. You know, that that you can hear straight facts and that might not actually grip you. But that hearing information in a story form will do something to your brain. It'll... It'll grip you and, you know, pull you to action or whatever in a way that just straight facts won't work, even if the facts are true. And so what he Mm. talks about in this one lecture I watched and I'll kind of just, you know, share this and let it hang and then we can move on. But I thought it was interesting and it has to do with Christianity again is he's talking about the different ways that the different ways that commandments are given throughout the Bible, the progressive way that it changes throughout the Bible and sort of what that means for us. So the 10 commandments, uh, one of the commandments is just simply kill not don't that shall not murder. You know, don't it will come across different, different English translations, but that's just the command is kill not. And he is talking, he talks a little bit with that about how uh, some of the same stuff we were talking about, about authority, about how a lot of the Bible, there are, there's this mode of communication, which he calls proclamation, where there's no qualifying statements. You know, in other words, it's not being recorded as, hey, don't kill because blank. You know, and the mm-hmm. the commandment is just kill not, period. And it's a very authoritative. Yeah, it's not like philosophical. It's not making it's not like making a thought piece about why you shouldn't kill because this is what it means and this is what the effect it has. Like I've heard preachers say, like, well, the reason God's saying not to kill is because it and the other ten commandments make a community that is sufficient to life and all these other things, but that that technically 
you can make that interpretation and that might be the reason of it. But really all the Bible is saying is just don't kill. Yeah. And you bring up a really interesting point because the other one also exists. So he gets into this, like the Mosaic law, there is more explanation and there is more parsing of you shouldn't kill your neighbor. Essentially, I guess we're kind of talking about like not ethics, but 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 you're talking about the angle where it's it's like, hey, God's commands actually lead to a flourishing community. And the Mosaic law sets that up more. Mm-hmm. Because it says not to kill, but then it also kind of gives examples of especially these kinds of murder are very wrong. But then also weirdly, like here are the times where it is appropriate, like, you know, capital punishment, essentially. Like if somebody has taken a human mm-hmm. life that was innocent, you take their life. And so he- unless they're in this city. Unless yeah. it's this day. Yeah. And so that's the different angle. And that is a more what he would say is that is a more human mode of communication is to give the justification to parse it out, to spell out uh, why it's beneficial or not beneficial to qualify the statements as opposed to proclamation, which is something only God can do is say kill not period. And that's all you need to hear. So those are the two layers. And then there's a third layer, which is when Jesus comes, he doesn't say kill not. He, you know, the sermon on the Mount, which is essentially Jesus commenting on the old Testament law and the the commands in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving affirmative commands. So it's not about mm. not doing something, not killing. It's about blessing that you find in living a certain way. You follow what I'm saying? Maybe explain that last point of the affirmative command. So you're saying, whereas it was, it went from God saying, don't proclamation, no explanation needed, humans taking that in the Mosaic Law, I mean, inspired by God, and explaining it, like theorizing it, and then Jesus is then saying, instead of don't do this, do this instead. Right, because there's a difference between saying don't kill and giving a command that leads to life. The, mm. they they're kind of the same you know if if you just glance at them they're the same thing but actually it's very different because if the command is kill not all you have to do to be you know a person who's innocent good. a good person yeah. is to have not done certain things whereas what Jesus does is he gives you know blessed are the meek They'll inherit the earth. He says, if somebody asks you for your coat, give it to them. If somebody asks you to walk a mile in their shoes, uh, Go I'm yeah, I'm kind of mixing <laughs> examples at this point. But the point being, 
that Jesus doesn't say anything to negate the negative commands, but he very much reframes them in a positive light. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is where I'm going to research into the future. It makes it make more sense that a lot of what Jesus said was so much more open-ended. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, a lot of the parables, there's no exact correct message. Or, or for example, in the story of the, gosh, I'm reaching for it, the Good Samaritan, he ends the story saying, mm-hmm. who do you think was, was the good neighbor? And they say, the one who took care of him. And he says, now go and do the same. And some of that ambiguity, some of that vagueness is not, you know, like vagueness for vagueness sake, but it's because he is giving you a story to live into rather than like Mm. external ethics to apply and say, well, as long as you don't steal, you're, you're good. You're good. He's giving you the affirmative, which is, Hey, how can you be generous? And there's no way to answer that question for all people. And that's why. He's giving you something to live into. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. It's writing your. And and so what your research, you're researching then the effects of this essentially. Well, what I'm researching, kind of the question I'm asking, it has to do with character. And the question I'm asking is like, on what basis and in what way can we in 2023 try to teach people to have character and try to instill character in people in a way that we'll accept? Because like in the past, Mm -hmm. you know, parents and teachers and stuff, there were no qualms about, about proclamation. Really? There was no qualms about saying, Hey, don't cheat on your test. Whereas now we're also like rhetorical. It's like, don't cheat on your test. And you can think of a, you can think of ways to spin that. We're like, well, I'm the victim by not cheating. And uh, we just don't, we don't accept like blunt statements like that anymore. Not saying that's a good or bad thing, but in light of that, how can you teach people to have character? I I probably need to sum down that question a little bit more. What do you mean sum it down? Well, you asked me what I was researching and I probably took like three minutes to explain it. So I'm still circling it a oh, little bit. gotcha, gotcha. But yeah. That'll be super interesting though. I think it will huh. be. Uh, it'll be cool. And I think because Northrop Fry, he was talking about Jesus giving you a story to write yourself into or to live into, I think is how he said it. I was like, that's what we talked about last week. So, yeah. I, I think that right there, that affirmative, that's kind of really where, not that the Bible only speaks, like certain parts of the Bible only speak to certain times, but like that might be much more of what our current world needs, or at least America needs, is more the affirmative actions where you're letting someone you're not saying, Hey, do this because, because then people are going to be like, well, the book that the Bible's old, I don't need to, you know, follow its rules or people will just be like, well, I, you know, 
I, I haven't killed anyone, but instead the ability to write yourself into a story. I think that's kind of what everyone's. Wow, I'm I'm being very hyperbolic. You can tell I used to preach, <laughs> uh, but I think that's what everyone is maybe looking for is that idea of being able to write themselves into something good, you know, to write using information. It's kind of the citing the sources thing we were talking about last week. Like you were saying, it's like, I want to write around myself to explain how I'm good. Um, And maybe Jesus's parables kind of confront us more in that space. Right. Right. And I think that, that today, we've we've kind of trained and conditions conditioned ourselves to see the negative in everything to see any anytime somebody does something good there's kind of a a knee-jerk reaction to be like oh well they're they're doing that because that's good pr or they're doing that Mm because they want something from me or they're doing that because you know any laundry list of reasons. I think that's some of the reasons why we're less comfortable talking about how to be a good person is because we are somewhat nihilistic about it. Being good gets, gets you a target. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the question I want to ask with this project. And so, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, mm-hmm. You want to jump into what'd you bring? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm trying to think if there's any bridges to use <clears throat> to talk about it. Um, so if you think of anything, let me know. I just so my my reading for this week was the which disorders was it? I think I started with bipolar disorders and then read through like obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, but just some interesting facts I was I was picking up as I was reading. Um, around specific phobia disorder um, and then also generalized anxiety disorder. So I'll, I'll start with specific phobia disorder um, phobias. We know what those are. Like those are the, the, you know, hyper specific fears that people tend to avoid. Like I think like in, you know, in pop culture, we all have our things where it's like, well, I have a phobia of this or I have a phobia of that. Um, for instance, I have phacelophobia, which is I really don't like the ocean and things that live in the ocean. Yeah, you're um, right. Or really water at all. <laughs> I forgot um, about that. I just I just don't. Um, now, I I don't know if I have that phobia, but I know I don't have specific phobia disorder because part of the diagnosis for it is you have three specific phobias. It's not just one, it's multiple uh, phobias that cause you significant distress and you have to kind of reshape your life to avoid these things. Um, that's not all the diagnostic criteria, but that's, that's the gist. Three, not, not just one, three. So I have um, a question with that. You can, yes. you can have one phobia and that's legitimate, but having three is what makes it this disorder. Yes, and having one can put you at more of a risk to develop multiple, but specific phobia disorder is not having, which is confusing. It's not just having one specific phobia. It's actually having at least three. Gotcha. Um, 
So as I was looking through it, I found it interesting that, and I'll just throw these facts out there and then we can chew into them. Um, one, phobias are hereditable. Like you can inherit phobias. Um, it's not like a hundred percent you inherit phobias, but I think it's at least between like 30 and 45%. Like it's shown to be a hereditable thing. Wow. Which I thought is interesting. And also America has more. Um, then this gets into, okay. So that's the phobia thing. I'll, I'll let that hang there. We can come back to it. Um, you have to have three phobias. And it's shown that phobias are heritable. So that that was kind of cooking in the back of my mind as I then went into reading on social anxiety disorder, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's uh, anxiety caused by social situations. Um, there is a fear of being negatively evaluated, judged in these social situations. Um, and that's where this like fear comes from, uh, it can result in like some panic attacks and, of uh, you know, just avoidance of social situations altogether. Um, so I'm reading through all this and I notice that America has a higher rate of social anxiety disorder to other countries. And along with that, it's specifically like not seen in or it, it's more it, it's more uh you see it more amongst like white americans than you do like people of color which is interesting or like yeah. people from other nationality groups um and then also the age of onset for social anxiety disorder is between the ages of eight and 15 and that kind of so along with that, too, later on, I was reading about generalized anxiety disorder, which is just general, like high levels of anxiety um, and generalized anxiety disorder is actually and I think we talked about this a while ago. It's more typical in higher income countries than in lower income countries. Um, I know a while ago we had talked about. If like the modern world is more stressed and more full of stress than like, which what doesn't make sense that it should be because like we have access to basic survival needs. Like you're talking about like Pavlov's hierarchy of needs. A lot of us have food. A lot of us have shelter. I mean, I know that uh, technically starvation is still a big thing in the Western world and not having enough access to food. So that, I can't just say we have access to food. Um, but I think typically when you think of the Western world, you think we have an, you think we have enough of these basics that we shouldn't be as stressed, but we still have higher amounts of stress in the Western quote unquote, more developed world than is seen in the rest of the world. So there's, you know, America has this high rate of social anxiety disorder, developed countries have a higher rate of generalized anxiety disorder. And there's this fact too of how like phobias and fears, this is where I go preacher more than like 
person studying stats. So I want to, from this point on, um, those were facts, listeners. I've given you all facts. Now we're wading into Rich is just kind of BSing. <laughs> this is just Rich's thoughts, not studies. Um, I, I just find it interesting how like it almost I kind of started looking in my mind at fear as like this infectious contagion, um, fear and anxiety and stress. It's this thing that can be passed on from like parents to children. Um, it is this thing that for social anxiety disorder is starting at a very young age. Um, and it seems like just very, yeah, I, just, I thought it was interesting. Now, sometimes I'll say this too. It's not that like, and I'll say this with every phobia and disorder I read out of here. It's not like these are like 50% of the country has generalized anxiety disorder. It's all low. I think maybe the highest of those was like seven or 8% like in the country. So it's not a lot, not a lot of people have this, but I just, I found it really interesting and especially like having worked with middle schoolers for a long time, that age range of like five to 18 like I have a soft spot for him and I've kind of been thinking too about like what I don't know. I've been toying around with this idea of uh, a, a while ago we talked about we we had a conversation on the podcast about I think just I don't think it was the podcast where we talked about going back to school. I think it was before that I was talking about how like just some some of my teachers just from the cuff complimented me on some stuff that made me feel really like, okay, I have a skill set in this. And ever mm -hmm. since that conversation, I've had like a lot of little things where it's like, huh, what about this? Or here's a conversation that makes me think differently or makes me think more about that. Like, so I've been trying to toy around with this idea and I might even, if I ever go and do like get a PhD, I might want to do specific research on the or may I just look it up and see if it exists on the effect of like intentional compliments and the effect that that can have on people's long term ability to feel um, a sense of purpose or a sense of skill that carries them out of their schooling and into the like job field, essentially. Because there's mm -hmm. there is kind of like a blip, you know, between that high school and and college. I think even recently, the more students I talk to, there's still a lot of, or it could just be the students I'm talking to. There's a lot of like, well, I don't really know what to do, or I'm still trying to figure it out, or um. So I wonder if like a missing piece is just this idea of the community, like. I'm not saying that teachers need to form a class or that, that there needs to be some sort of class where these compliments are just handed out, but just being more of a, a society that hands out those compliments more liberally, um, knowing that some of them might not stick. They've got to be genuine compliments though. Like some of them might not stick to that person, but that person might hear the compliment they need to hear to feel like, okay, I can push forward in this. And maybe there's, you know, with like the generalized anxiety and social anxiety disorder, I think there is this, you know, there's this fear of 
like putting words out there into the aether sometimes because um, you're maybe worried about how that might come back to to bite you. I don't think that's mm-hmm. keeping people from complimenting each other. But I do think that there is this natural risk to giving someone a genuine compliment and it does take a little bit of effort. So if you're already busy doing other things, it can fall to the wayside. Um, but I just kind of feel like it's a it's a very necessary thing. And especially once I looked at those stats, it just made that kind of more real to me, I guess, to to use a very cliche phrase. Um, the stats of the rates within young people. Uh, just the rates in general. Oh, these rates weren't necessarily all for young people. Some of these were adult mm-hmm. rates. But for social anxiety disorder, that the prevalence of when it started or when you first start seeing symptoms is between the ages of 5 and 18. Now, that could be also because it's harder to diagnose in young children. Um, but I also think that schooling and like trauma not just like big trauma um because trauma isn't just necessarily what happens sometimes it's also your interpretation of what happens so when i use the word trauma it's not like someone could have just a really bad experience at school giving a presentation um and maybe just enough people say something weird or enough people make fun of them about it or it bombs in a certain way and that might not be a traumatic experience but the interpretation of it, how that person internalizes that event, like they internalize it as trauma. Um, do you? Yeah. So do you know anything about whether or not young people today either A, are more anxious? I, I guess let me let me ask this way. Are young people today more anxious than they were in the past? And if so, is that an actual difference in generations? Or is that just a thing that, yeah, young people are more likely to be socially anxious and sometimes they grow out of it? Um, There is a natural remission rate. I remember reading something about that. I don't know the exact stats of it. But I know it's not just that they're anxious during that time and it it just goes away. Like some people, that anxiety does stick around. Um, some people might even have a baseline amount of like social anxiety disorder or maybe even generalized anxiety disorder. There might even be like some, there's even some like like body dysmorphia disorder and stuff like that that isn't presented until higher moments of stress hit. Or that person goes through a major change like moving out of the house um, where those things really become present because the support net that they had was is now not there. Um, However, sadly, to answer your question, um, I don't think from my reading of the DSM that I have the answer to that question. I don't know if we're more stressed now than we were in the past. I'd like yeah. to look that up, though, because that would be well, interesting. Because the reason I ask is, and I, I think I kind of shared this anecdote on one of the episodes, too, about how I 
my my second year down here, <coughs> I had one of those moments where I realized like, oh gosh, all of these other students are probably more afraid of me than I am of them. Uh, being in classes with a lot of students who are like, you know, five to eight or nine years younger than me. And I just moved down here. All the things you were talking about. I moved across the country. I was going to a new school. I felt like I was the odd one out. And so the first couple of semesters, I was a little more nervous. I'm also more just disposed to be reserved and shy and all of that. And I had that moment. Yeah, probably the beginning of last semester where I was like, oh, gosh, you always say like, oh, they're just as scared of me as I am of them. And that's just like a thing you say to make yourself feel better. But I had a moment where I really realized that I was like, oh, yeah, these I think that I think this is what I'm getting at. I realized I was like, I feel like everyone here is pretty anxious and shy and nervous in a way that's odd to me. But I don't know if that is Gen Z or if that's just what it's like to be 20 years old. And I never realized it. So that's hmm. that's kind of why I ask. I didn't know if it's a actual generational thing or just the time in life. It would be interesting to know. It probably could be both. I'd have to read more studies on it. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if with with I mean Gen Z is like the first age group that fully grew up with technology. So it mm-hmm. it fully wouldn't surprise me if there are things unique about them and potentially anxiety could be one of them. I don't know. And it's not even too that everyone has anxiety because it's not that. Right. Um, but it seems like there is. Yeah. It seems like people are more predisposed to it. Than it was necessarily true in the past. And, you know, once again, this is not. This one I'm about to say is not statistical proven fact. I just I'd be interested to research it more. But I wonder. So you had said, like, I just had that moment um, where, you know, when it came to your socializing at school, you were like, oh, no, they really are more afraid of me. It's a cliche thing that you had heard, but you had that moment where it clicked and became like real. Um, And I wonder if to latch on to that specifically, if there's some way of us being able as a culture to make sure people have that moment, not, not a moment specifically, like you said, of I had a moment, like they're more afraid of me than I am. I am of them. But if there's a way of making sure they have a moment where something where they have that click, that aha that they need to have to engage in a productive way in what they're doing next. Like for some kids in school, that might be they have like that moment, kind of like where I did, where it's like, oh, this is what I want to do with my career. Um, it same thing. I had that same moment as like a thirty-year-old. Oh, this is what I want to do with my career. Um, whether it's like a social thing, like you had said, but I wonder if, in lack of having those moments, if what fills the whole, because like, if those moments in theory, in this harebrained theory I'm proposing, if those moments produce confidence 
to rise to the occasion of what needs to happen next, the absence of those moments would be, I'm going to theorize anxiety. It, it would be like the opposite of confidence would be, which would be like a, a fear an avoidance or a shaky hesitation that whatever you do go and apply yourself to might be either the wrong thing or you might fail in it. And it's not a good failure where you fail and learn and try again. It's a bad fail. It's like a catastrophic failure. Well, I think what you're kind of talking about is multiple. You're talking about multiple different things that ground a person. Yeah. Whether that be clarity about who you are or what you want to do or some number of things. And I think that, so this is what it makes me think of weirdly. I heard some report in the past week or so where they were researching the, the happiest and least happy jobs in America. And the most miserable, I think were bankers and lawyers and the, the most, the, the group that said they were most satisfied with their job were actually lumberjacks weirdly. And it kind of, when you looked at the whole thing, it was pretty much a sliding scale of like the, the less, the, the more information and the less tangible your work is, you're kind of more, miserable and the more physical it was you feel more gratified by that and now none of that takes into account like you know what people get paid because banking and law and being a lawyer lawying <laughs> banking and <laughs> law are you know i'm not trying to cry too many tears for people who are probably making like many six figures but the point being that just that old seemingly almost primal thing of like just going out and working with your hands, it does seem to like ground you. Like that's why people say touch grass. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I'm not confident enough to draw like direct lines to from that to what you're talking about with anxiety. But I I feel like there is some sort of some sort of relationship between the way that we just are online and consuming constantly there's no way that the, that doesn't somehow start a domino effect that could lead to what you're talking about higher prevalence of uh of general anxiety and the the phobia disorder higher prevalence of those in more developed, more rich nations. Hmm. With that too, okay, so you said the the more you work with information as a career, the more unhappiness there is. That is exclusively what school is. True. For like the first 18 to 21, 22 years of your life. Um, you know, most point. of your life is is spent Edu- like being educated which once again isn't a bad thing but in you know western world like like we're you know like where we're currently at i don't know why i felt the need to have to like <laughs> to clarify have to 
to to clarify that. Uh, but you know, Gen Z too, and you know, old older millennials, oh, and younger millennials too. Um, growing up with the internet and growing up kind of with the culture that we grew up with, you know, you didn't, you don't come home from school and get in your car and go and hang out with your friends. Like there's, there's just much more. We use the internet a lot more. Parents are lending their kids out as more or as much to go kind of just meet up at the mall or meet up at, you know, at the bleachers under the bleachers at school or stuff like, like there's more like a, like stay at home unless you're going somewhere really rigidly planned. So people are kind of losing other moments to ground themselves in a skill set, except for the kids who are like, except for the kids who perform well in school and find their niche in that education, like environment, which I think is not a lot of kids. Um, I don't know. It just takes me back to the point of like, is there a way of helping the school system? Because I I hate the idea of just blaming the school system. Like the school system has a lot of things going on. I feel like it it needs some help with stuff like this. But if there's just ways of helping, helping, I don't think it's a test. It's not a test that you take. That's another thing that might just make people anxious. Like, oh, great, I'm going to take a test. And what's it going to tell me to do? But like, maybe it's just, you know, there's that one kid who's really into graphic design and they're good at it. And just saying that, like just saying the simple phrase of like, hey, you're really good at this. You can make a career out of it like that. The kid might be like, oh, yeah, maybe and not take it to heart, like because they have something else. But it also might really be a phrase that helps that kid have the confidence needed to step into whatever is next after schooling. Like why do you think so many kids who play in sports teams want to go and keep playing sports and do great at it? Um, Even if they don't, they have the confidence to because like, that's what sports teams do. They instill that confidence. But what if, you're playing a sport and you know you're not going to move on or what if you're not playing a sport what if you're on the bowling team like i was like how how do you have that that grounded thing that helps you stand more firm as you step forward because if we're not helping people to get that then they're just going to be shaky and i hate to say too that this is a thing as well but in that age range of 8 to 18 Parental influence is still very important. Um, and it, it obviously has an effect on kids. I'm not here to say that that age range parent parents are unimportant. But hey, phone, don't be ringing. But at the same point, that age group is highly, highly influenced and addicted to the voice of their peers who I also think are ill-equipped to share that kind of information. Um, It feels risky to speak into someone's future, but also just like mentors in their life outside of the home. Um, And I, I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, shoot. What was I going to say? I actually literally just opened my mouth and forgot what I was going to say. You're speechless. I understand. Speechless. 
I think that people who this is what I was going to say, people who go into the trades, for example, right out of high school, I think they get that they I'm always seeing on Facebook some, you know, kid I went to high school with is like trades are the best. I never went to college. I started as an 18 year old making this many dollars a year and it's the best thing in the world. Like they're always evangelizing for that kind of life. And yeah, which like so there, could be great. Yeah. There are like certain paths who do have that. It's, I think the question you're kind of saying is, are there more of those paths and are there ways to help the right kids get onto the right ones where they will find that? Yeah. Or even like how to get kids onto the trades path. Cause I feel like it's, you know, it's another thing that you have to be good at that kids aren't getting necessary experience with, unless you maybe go into a shop class, like just even how to get kids into these rewarding paths. And that those paths might be different for some kids, like being a lawyer might be that reward path, but you know what they might need if they don't know that they're geared to be a lawyer is when they're like in a class, really arguing about something they're passionate about. They might just need the 30 seconds of a teacher or a peer being like, hey, man, when you're passionate about something, you do such a good job defending it. Like that, that passion, like is a rare thing. And like, I could really see it helping yourself and other people. And it's kind of like what you said with the whole Jesus parables thing. You give them enough of a compliment that if it strikes a chord in their heart. They can write themselves into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be interesting research if you ever do that. And also though, I don't think it has to just be teachers. I think anybody who is part of somebody's, any adult who's, you know, uh, part of somebody's life, it doesn't have to be teachers. It could be your cousin. It could be your, if you're an aunt or an uncle, that sort of thing. True. It just has to be someone who's seeing it. Right. And like, yeah, that's a good point to it. And I know I say teachers because I know teachers see a lot of kids. Um, But it's also, to your point, unfair to say, well, if teachers were just doing their job, because my goodness, they're doing a lot. Right. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys learned something new. So excited you guys are here joining us. I know that that sounds so canned, but seriously, we're both excited about being in school. And if you guys can get some enjoyment out of that as well, hey, that's an added benefit. We'll see you guys on the next one after we get done with some more homework.